Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, I've got Chris Blows in the beach shack. His story is absolutely incredible. If you're scared of sharks, this is one the dead set listener. He shouldn't have survived the great white shark attack in 2015 that took his leg. He lost so much blood, he was in cardiac arrest by the time he got to the hospital and stayed in a coma for the next 10 days. He tells his story of his ups and downs dealing with the situation many days after and also months and months of rehab to get back to where eventually gets back in the surf and starts surfing again. So let's sit back and have a listen to my chat with Chris. This week in the Beach Shack, we've got uh, Chris Blows, which has got a an amazing story. I mean, I've done a lot of stuff in the ocean. I've seen sharks. I've dived with sharks. Uh, but he had a an encounter that most people absolutely are petrified of. So welcome into the uh, Beach Shack, Chris. How are you, mate? Yeah, good. Thanks for having me on boat. Mate, now let's uh, start way back when you grew up. Did you grow up uh, around the Adelaide area? I did, mate. I grew up um, in the Adelaide, Adelaide Hills in a town called Woodside. So it's actually probably an hour's drive from any beach, really. So And that's a lot of the case for, I mean, for, for surfing beaches in um, Adelaide, um, most people that surf have got to drive, you know, at least 45 minutes to get anyways. But, yeah, I grew up in the Adelaide Hills, uh, had a pretty typical childhood, really. I love growing up, I love playing sport, love my cricket, love my footy, love my golf, but never really got into surfing or anything like that until I was about the age of uh, 15. And um, yeah, soon that was just from going down to the south coast, Middleton, probably about an hour's drive from Woodside, um, just spending every summer holidays down there and um, tried surfing one day and then fell in love with it straight away. So tell us, obviously then you must have moved, did you, from there um, closer to where the waves were? Yeah, well, to tell the truth, up to about, so I did my apprenticeship um, as a carpenter um, and just pretty much every weekend just did that hour drive down surfing down the south coast and then as I was doing my apprenticeship I met my now wife Chloe and she got a scholarship to go over country on the Air Peninsula and so I don't know if anyone's if you're not familiar with the Air Peninsula it's, it's sort of the far west coast of South Australia there's some really good waves along that coast it's very remote but yeah I, I followed her over there not long after that and that's when I really grew my love for surfing you know camping up and down that coast anywhere from Port Lincoln all the way around to Cactus Beach um, I mean you got Streaky Bay Elliston all these spots in between there which have unreal surf spots very very remote um, but probably the positive is you can get you can pull up to a spot and there'd be pumping waves and there'd be no one else out and but yet also it's it's a quite sharky along that coast as most people would know um, you've got the in Port Lincoln you've got the shark cage diving out of Neptune Island and, and lots of uh, fish and seal colonies and stuff around that area that track, track the big white sharks. So 
Yeah, mate, I know it's, uh, I've done the shark dive with Calypso a few times, so it is a, a fair way out there to Neptune Island. So, yeah, I know the area and, uh, yeah, there's some um, pretty big sharks, mate, around there. So there did is, you experience yeah. sharks before the incident? Have you, did you see them? Because obviously you're surfing in remote areas. Mate, I, I used, I've never seen I've never seen a shark in my life, not even, not even a bronzy or anything. They're everywhere over there. But we always used to talk about it and a lot of the spots – um, I'd surf. It was always in the back of my mind. For any surfer that surfs over on that coast, it's always in the back of your mind. But you just never think it's going to happen to you. And yeah, I mean, the spot that I was surfing at the time, Fishery Bay. Yeah, it's it's no. It's, there's been shark attacks there before. There's a big silk, like massive seal colony just around the corner from where I was surfing. The day I was surfing when I was attacked, there was you know there was huge schools of salmon coming through the lineup. And um, yeah, when I look back at that now, if I I, I would never put myself in that situation now, um, but um, of course, like before these things actually happen to you, you never think they're going to. Um, yeah, so I'll probably just before I get in the water now, I'll assess the situation a little bit more. I don't put myself in that situation. Well, mate, as they say, hindsight's a great thing, isn't it? Day, eh? it is. Tell us a, a bit about that day. Just uh, paint the picture. You know, you're uh, going down for a surf as you probably did. You know, every other time. Yeah, so that morning, it was actually Anzac Day, um, 2015. I Chloe was back in Adelaide for like a music festival. I had my mates around the night before. And yeah, we'd been obviously the night before, we we're talking about where we we're going to surf. And, and we got up that really early that, that morning to go to dawn service. And the conditions weren't great. But yeah, we, it was really, one thing I remember that morning is the rain just coming in sideways. It was really wet and cold. And because we're already saturated, after standing out there for dawn service, we thought, stuff, we'll just go out and have a look. We went for a drive out to fishery. It's still probably like 30-minute drive from Port Lincoln, which is where I was living at the time. And like Fishery Bay, you can surf. It's a really nice white sandy beach, and you can surf both sides of the point. So you can surf left point and right point. But on in this particular in this in this particular particular weather conditions, um, like howling southwesterly winds, like rain coming in sideways, there's only one spot you can surf, and that's that's right point. It's like the wind, uh, the cliff protects protection from the wind. And yeah, I would I've been surfing there for probably about an hour. Um, the conditions weren't that great, to tell you the truth. And I was literally going to get one more wave and and come back come back in. And um, yeah, I was paddling back out to a spot known as a suck rock which is where you take off and yeah I literally got hit from the side which felt like being hit by a car you know like it hit me one thing I remember is just how hard this thing hit me and yeah I soon realized I was being attacked by a four and a half five meter white shark so you know you know my scream (laughs) like no one will ever forget that scream you know that it sent everyone scrambling for the rocks and um, including my two good mates, Nick and Brock, who I was surfing with, who actually didn't realise it was me at this stage. So, yeah, very, very scary. Um, you know, when it was happening, I was like, fuck, I can't believe this is actually happening to me, you know. Yeah. When you got hit, were there other surfers around you there in that lineup? Yeah, mate, there was, there was probably like 10, 15 surfers. And, like, I was literally – I was almost back at the group and I would have only been in – I would have only been in just over waist-deeper water – uh, but it drops off pretty quickly, and yeah, it it, it just they're just super smart creatures, you know. It hit me. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was watching me for a bit beforehand, and and it just hit me from this angle where I, I couldn't see it coming, and which is like my sort of my left flank, and it grabbed the underside of my board, and it was just yeah, when it hit me, I, it launched me out of the water, mate. Like it, it was shaking me around, and then it let go of me. 
and I was off my board. And by the time Nick and Brock realized it was, uh, it was me, they started the paddle back out to help me. But as I said, I was off my board at this stage and I just, I just wanted to get out of the water. I would have got within, you know, an arm's reach of Nick. I went to go grab his hand and the shark come up behind, just did turn on this like 90 degree angle and, and it come back at me for the second time. And, and when it come up behind me the second time, it, it grabbed my left leg and, and pulled me underwater and, you know, I completely disappeared the board and everything. So yeah, the, the lads were up there close and personal with it. They, they'll never forget that. You know, Nick will never be able to get that thing out of his mind of when the shark come up behind me. He still remembers, like, the sensors on its nose is a breach of water and, and, you know, they roll their eyes back um, to protect their – when they bite down on something. So, yeah, it's just something that <laughs> Nick and Brock will never be able to get and, um, yeah, very, very traumatic event for them and myself as well. Well, mate, there's oh, definitely the – you'd never forget that after watching your mate get pulled under the water. And now – when you got pulled under, they probably would have thought, that's it, you, you're gone. Yeah. What were you thinking at that point? The, first, the initial hit, I was like, shit, this is it. You know, I'm, I'm actually getting attacked by a shark. And I couldn't believe how strong the bloody thing was. Like, it's, it's hard, to, hard to describe. It's like the power difference of like, oh, it's like grabbing your phone and, and shaking that around. It just, it just felt like I wasn't in control the whole time. And all those things kind of rushing to your head that, you know, this is actually, this is it. This is actually the end of my life. I'm never going to get to see Chloe or my family ever again. All those things you look forward to, like getting married, having kids, all that sort of stuff that just seems so distant from there. And yeah, it then, it then, um, you know, dragged me through the water and I ended up, it ended up ripping my left leg off above the knee. So, you know, I'd had this initial bite mark down my left flank and then I'd been completely amputated from, above the knee and I think that's the only way I got away from the shark because you know it, it then had my my left leg and and it had it, which was attached which had my leg rope attached to it and then you could just see it was just bob when I popped up the shark was just like they call it tombstoning with the with the board obviously you'd know what that means it's just firstly my board was just bobbing around like a fishing float around us because it had my leg and my leg rope and um, that's the only reason I think I got away from the shark because it took my leg and, um, yeah, just just thinking of that whole situation just blows my mind, yeah. Um, but I tried to climb onto Nick's back at that stage and we got kind of hit We got hit by a wave and that separated us. But, you know, I was already floundering above the water at this stage. I couldn't – I didn't know, really know. I was starting to go in and out of consciousness already and, and the boys did an amazing job. They got, they got on either side of me and they somehow got me to shore – and someone that was waiting there at the bottom of the cliff already had their leg rope off their board and they tied that around my stump and that um, stemmed the blood a, a little bit. But, you know, if that went on one or two minutes later, you know, I probably would have bled to death in the water. Well, you would have been losing a lot of blood straight away. But how long were you underwater? Do you remember how long, obviously, you could hold your breath for that, that period? But, geez, it must, I, I, it gives, gives me chills just thinking about, uh, thinking about this, uh, what you're talking about. It might have only been a few seconds, but it felt like minutes. I remember having to hold my breath and remember gasping for air as I, as I popped up. And, um, yeah, but it might have only been a few seconds, but you know what it's like when you get hit by a wave or you get put under unexpectedly, you kind of lose your breath straight away. So, yeah, as I said, I washed in at the, 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 the cave, which is like there where everyone paddles out. And, you know, I was very lucky there would have been – 10, 15 surfers there and they managed to stretch me across those rocks. Um, 
up about 150 stairs, which is unlikely at some of these these surf spots on the west coast. You're normally scaling down a, a bloody cliff, so I'm very lucky there was actually even a set of stairs to get me up. They they got me into um, they got me up the stairs and they threw me into the um, back of my mate Nick's Land Cruiser, and that's when we started our scramble for hospital. And um, we got about 11 kilometres down the road, and and that's where we'd met the ambulance. But by that stage, you know my the paramedics opened the back door in Nick's Land Cruiser and I was laying in there completely lifeless and um, I was as white as a sheet of paper that the paramedics honestly thought they were too late. And But, you know, they they had to give it a go. They, they, they got me straight into the back of that, that ambulance and they began to administer CPR straight away. Yeah, another thing I was very lucky, there was actually two, uh, there was actually three paramedics. So two, one was able to drive the ambulance while two did unrestrained CPR in the back of the ambulance, which is unheard of. They're not even meant to do that it's against protocol as you know if they were to come off the road and crash you could have four casualties instead of set of one and they did little things like they don't carry um, blood on ambulances so they got an IV drip into me which would have been hard um, even finding a vein with you know the little blood that I had in me and that kept any little bit of blood I had in my body circulating around and you know that, that CPR started at 10 a.m and and didn't stop till 11 15 a.m so you know, and in that time, I had eight units of blood and 12 units of plasma, which was actually the whole unmatched blood stock in Port Lincoln Hospital. And, you know, to put that to put that in context, the average human body, I think, only has like eight, nine units of blood in it. So I, in that hour, I virtually lost everything. Crazy that even though, even though I'm at a hospital, but I somehow, somehow made it. They, they don't know why they persisted with CPR for so long. I must have been showing signs of life here and there a little bit, but... You know, I think they were, they were about to stop doing CPR and, and I went to go pull the breathing tubers down my throat out and the, the whole room went silent. So, yeah, crazy, crazy. Well, yeah, it's an amazing story. And, and, and as you said, that long doing CPR, it's, um, you know, they've, they've just done enough to keep you going so you can get to the hospital. And did you, have you ever spoken to the ambulance guys later or, or anything, anything like that? Yeah, yeah. I, I went back a few months after my attack and... I remember just being in the main street of Port Lincoln to get a coffee somewhere and I had one of these paramedics walk in there. I don't, I don't remember, don't, didn't recognise her or anything like that. And she goes, she goes, you won't recognise me, but, and she was in tears. She goes, you won't recognise me, but I sat on top of you for a very, very long time with a few other paramedics doing CPR for over an hour. And to see you walk in here is maybe really emotional. And, and to see you, yeah, we just didn't think that you were going to make it at all. So... And that's really good. I think the outcomes are normally a lot different. For I think the statistics of actually surviving CPR from blood loss is very, very low. So, you know, I'm very, very lucky. I don't know why I did survive. And that's why that myself and the doctor, she you know, that's where, she was, where we went out and wrote a book about it. And, um, yeah, because she doesn't know either how, how it all happened. You know, just, it's just a miracle, really. Yeah, it is amazing. I mean, I know how, oh, well, I know how hard it is to do CPR for for you know, short periods, let alone to do that for that long. It's 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 very very hard on uh, people to keep a, a, a good um, you know good compressions, and especially if you're in the back of the ambulance, and then you get to the hospital, and you know they've done an amazing job. Now, from Port Lincoln, though, they would have had to transport you somewhere else from there. Yeah, so not long after I went to go, you know, I showed signs of life. The, they'd already um, sent the MedStar helicopter over from Adelaide. And that landed on 
the port, one of the they had to stop a footy game. Um, they got me into got me into the back of that uh, Medstar helicopter, and we started our transport to Adelaide. And you know, I think I arrived in Adelaide at about three p.m. So that's yeah, six hours after my attack. So you know, it's, it's probably point. Most people know that I'm from South Australia. Port Lincoln's very remote. I mean, it's it's eight hour drive from any major city. Um, so yeah, and obviously the the, the hospital in Port Lincoln isn't equipped to do major surgeries and like that. So, yeah, I didn't arrive in Adelaide till, yeah, 3 p.m., six hours after my attack, and I was rushed straight into emergency surgery. And then, you know, that night my family, you know, was shoved into a room and with counsellors and all this sort of stuff, and they got told the situation was, you know, very grave and that, that even if he does, you know, he's probably 10% chance of even surviving the night, and even if he does um, survive the night, he's probably most certainly going to wake up with some kind of brain damage due to the it's the extensive CPR that I had. Um, but luckily for me, you know, 10 days later, I woke from a coma. I had, I had no um, brain damage, but I was going into complete renal failure. And that was due to the extensive CPR, CPR blood loss and stuff like that. You know, all that surgery they did that night before um, of stitching up my first bite mark, you know, all opened up because my kidneys and livers started, stopped working. I swelled up. And all those wounds and everything opened up. So I was still very, very um, sick and I wasn't out of the woods yet. And, yeah, to tell you the truth, those next four to five weeks were absolute hell. You know, I had no pain when I was attacked. You know, your body goes into fight or flight and shuts all those things down. But when I woke from my coma and a few days after, the pain was unbearable and you know they pumped me with all this pain medication i was on a fentanyl ketamine all this sort of stuff at the highest doses then but then i'd have to go get dialysis to flush all the toxins out of my system because my kidneys and liver weren't working and that would flush all the pain medication out so then for the next 20 you know 12 24 hours i'd have 10 out of 10 pain until they could pump me with pain medication again it was just a vicious cycle and um probably the, the those first four weeks were hell really yeah. And did, when did you get out? How long were you in hospital? Uh, for four weeks or you were actually in there longer? Uh, I was uh, eight weeks and they wanted to keep me in there longer, but I'd had enough. As you know, like, it's, yeah, I was able to get in and out of bed by then. Um, and I just said to them, you know, it's, I wasn't sleeping well in the hospital, didn't take well. You know, I was on, on fentanyl for I think six weeks straight, pressing that button every five minutes. And when I come off that medication, when I come off that um, pain medication, I got really sick and um, I suppose I almost had kind of withdrawals and I just got sick of being in hospital and I said, you can send the nurse out to, to my house every day to do dressing changes and stuff like that. And yeah, so it was eight weeks and, but you know, that's <laughs> the only little bit I realized that's when the hard work actually started. You know, I had, when you're in hospital, you have everything in the push of a button. You can, you need pain medication, you push, push a button. You, pre, you need food, you push a button. But when I got home, it's been everything really sunk in, to tell you the truth. And, um, yeah, that was probably my lowest point. Mm. Now, when you did come out of the coma, who broke the news to you? Did you realise you'd lost your leg? And uh, But the outcome of what was next, It's who was um, the one that had to uh, give you that news? Oh, um, so it was the doctors and as well as my family standing next to bed. I, I still was very confused. To tell the truth, you know, I thought the dialysis machine that I was connected to was a Coke vending machine. And every time the 
nurse would go out of the room. I'd try and hatch this plan as how I was going to get a can of Coke out of this vending machine. That's the state that I was in. So when they told me that I was that I'd been attacked by a shark, I, I didn't believe them. I didn't realise. Um, so it was probably been you know. I reckon at least two weeks until I could gather my thoughts and work out actually where, what room I was in or where I was until I, you know, realized I had actually been attacked by a shark. And um, to tell you the truth, I think one of the first things I said to Chloe was, how am I going to surf again? <laughs> you know, that's how much it meant to me, you know, surfing two, three times a week. And to have that taken from me, the thought of losing surfing was the worst thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> Well, mate, with the um, attack, and you said your leg was attached to the board, did you – what happened to the leg? Did you end up finding that or connected to the board? Yeah, so the, it's funny. When we, when, we're getting carried, when I was getting carried up the cliff, the, the boys just said – they said they could see where the shark was the whole time because I had my leg, and as I said earlier, and it was just like – it was like bobbing like a fishing float from the, all, the whole side. Of, it went all the way over to the other side of the bay and they could see where the shark was. They couldn't see the shark, but they could see my board just bobbing around because it was towing my leg and my board. And then it, it must have – it must not been able to snap the leg rope. So it let go on my leg and then when it washed up, my board washed up on the beach and when they went to go collect my board, my leg was still attached to my leg rope. So they actually – come to hospital, like one of the police officers brought that in while still under CPR in hospital and the doctor's like, what the fuck do you think I'm going to do with this? You know, I'm just trying to keep him alive. But yeah, everyone asked me, what did, we have? What did you do with the leg? And I honestly don't know. It must have come to LA with me and um, yeah, I suppose it just gets put with, you know, people get legs amputated all the time. So I suppose it goes with them. <laughs> Mate, now, so you touched on it before, the, the mental side of it. Now, I couldn't even imagine how stressful that would have been. You said that your first thought was, how am I going to surf again? But did you start thinking about the rest of your life? I did. You know, those. that's when I was sitting on the side of the bed in the room and, you know, everything had changed, how was, all those day-to-day activities that we all take for granted, like literally getting in and out of the car, going to the toilet in the middle of the night on one leg. I had to relearn how to do all those things and um, – and also, as I said, I, I don't know if I said earlier, but I was a carpenter. So, and I left school in year 11 and that's all I knew, you know. How was I going to get back to work as a carpenter? How was I going to be able to work, get up and down a ladder and all that sort of stuff? And I was told that I probably wasn't going to be able to. And, you know, that that sort of put me in a negative mindset, I suppose, from the start. And But I had to get myself out of that. I, I found when I was really being really negative in down um i wasn't achieving anything i was just you know spend the whole day just laying in bed but i had to i found when i you know forced myself to have that positive mindset and be grateful for the things i still you know had in life that's when i actually started to move forward and that that just that positive thinking is it can be hard at times when you're in that situation but thinking positive like that helped me through my next period which was yeah rehab and, and learning to walk again but those initial life changes of you know i think yeah, just get just getting in and out of bed, and it's just a process. Yeah, it was it was a struggle at the start. Were there times where you sat there and thought, "Yeah, I'm just going to give up here," or you always had that positive oh, to get out and do I stuff? Think, no, absolutely. That's what I that, you know, I was you know in tears every day, just like, "What's happened?" You know, I'm not going to be able to surf again. I'm not going to be able to get back to work again. How am I? Yeah, one of the biggest things. How am I going to get a job and you know support a family and do all this sort of stuff you just you just it's all those unknowns in the early stage but yeah more and more I um 
further further I got along and probably the best thing for me was actually speaking to other people that have been through similar things and seeing other people that are surfing with or working with one leg that inspired me to you know get out of my rut and do something about it so and do you find you do you think you're lucky as well because one you probably shouldn't have survived it but you did so do you take the positive out of that Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm very, I knew, I know how close I was to, you know, statistically I should have, shouldn't have survived that. So it's made me um, not take all those things for granted that we can do every day, you know, just little things like getting out of bed, going to the toilet in the middle of the night and just family, you know, um, I think, you know, as my going back to when um, I was younger, I never really had any, you know, hardship in my life um you know I had a really good upbringing my dad was a police officer mum was a school teacher it wasn't until the age of 16 when my parents split up and that was my first sort of like you just think your parents are gonna be together forever when you're younger and that was my first sort of hardship and and then that kind of separated my family a bit my sister moved out my brother moved out and it wasn't until we're a bit of a broken family until something like this happened you know I was then in hospital we were, my family were forced into this room and given this this news and that it's funny how this this whole event has just brought my family back closer together and it's probably made them realize that we got to you know not take those things for granted so absolutely it's changed just the whole events made me appreciate my family and everything a lot more so yeah you're 100 right i mean we, we all take things for granted we all worry about the small things as well it's, it's only until something major happens that really puts it into perspective and and just listen to your story it makes you know hopefully people listening it will resonate with them that you know they could be complaining about something today but then they listen to your story and go geez i've got nothing to worry about compared to what you've actually gone through so you know it's an amazing uh, yeah, uh, story I, just going like yeah i went to uh, just co- recently competing in like these adaptive surfing competitions and stuff i went to one in america the world adaptive surfing titles in america last year and i think it's like 300 competitors from all over the world and, you know, it made me realise I've got nothing to complain about. There's people out there on surfboards with no legs, no arms, people with zero vision. Like, yeah, that inspired me to, um, you know, become a better person as well. So, yeah. So tell us about that. You're back, on, you're back surfing. So how did that come about? How have you been able to adapt to be able to surf again? Yeah, I sort of pushed surfing to the side, you know. Understandably, um, I lost interest for surfing about for about 12 months after my attack and then um, ended up seeing other people that were doing similar, th- they were, that had got back into specifically a guy called Colin Cook in, um, who got attacked by a shark in Hawaii. He was the same situation as me, above knee, amputee, left leg, goofy footer, and he designed his own surf leg and that inspired me to maybe give it a crack and I ended up designing my own surf leg and because um, obviously there's no prosthetics on the market that enable you to do that and once I'd got does on my own surf leg i uh ended up just going out and giving it a crack on a really long board you know i fell off more times than i stood up but i i did stand up once and as soon as i realized that that i you know i was hooked again and kept going every weekend slowly got better at it and then um yeah it's i've certainly come a long way um i don't surf like as good as i used to but just having that feeling of getting back in the ocean standing up on a board and um yeah that's that's what every surfer chases, I suppose. Just that feeling of standing up on a wave. And mate, what what was the initial feeling when you were going back in the water? Was there a fear there? Oh, absolutely! Like 
I found that um, if I would go back in the water and there was there's similar conditions to like what I had that day, I'd find myself almost having a panic attack and everything would start going and fast forward and I'd start getting blurry vision and stuff like this. So it was really, really hard at the start. But I'd never used to put myself in those situations. I'd never – so I sort of eased myself in, into it. I wouldn't surf spots that I know in SA that are sharky. I would um, try and surf for shorter periods of time. I'd never surf – like try not to surf in conditions of the day like it was similar to the day when I was attacked. And then just slowly by exposing myself to it, I slowly got used to it. And, um, yeah, it's now I'm back surfing on the Air Peninsula. I'll never surf Fishery Bay ever again, but I'm back surfing on the Air Peninsula, which is a big step for me because um, anyone that's been over that way know how, how bloody sharky it is. But do you still get trigger points, though, that, that set you back or you get that uh, depression comes back after a while because of the incident? Not so much. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I didn't have any, really any proper PTSD symptoms until about five years after my attack. And as I said, I, I thought initially I thought I was going crazy. I was waking up in the middle of the night hearing sirens, hearing bombs for some reason. It doesn't make any sense. I was having these crazy, you know, I feel like I'd wake up in the middle of the night and my whole body would be shaking, feel like I'm vibrating in hot sweats. And as I said, then I'd be having these crazy attacks where I'd be driving down the main street and I'd have to pull over because um, everything would look like was going at 300 kilometres an hour. It looked like trucks were coming at 300 kilometres an hour and I thought I was going bloody crazy. And um, little did I know, yeah, that after going to speaking to someone about it, that, that they were just symptoms of PTSD. And that's just, you know, I'm going to be covering from it most physically and mentally for the rest of my life. But... Um, once I'd sought help and, and spoke to someone about it and actually understood it a bit better, it's allowed me to, I suppose, have a bit of like a, tool, like a toolbox of strategies to go to when I'm feeling like that. To maybe that might mean going surfing more. It might mean, you know, I've recently started doing the last two, three years, been doing breath work with um, my chiropractor who actually has some Australian uh, records for free diving and stuff like that. He's obviously a breathwork guru and um, just being able to learn how to take control of my breath. And cause a lot of the time I find myself, you know, my body gets stuck in fight or flight and I don't even realize it and I'm hyperventilating and it just, it just snowballs. So just knowing what's happening um, and, and learning to how to take control of it. But, you know, as I said, I'm going to be recovering from it. It's just going to be an ongoing thing for the rest of my life. But yeah. Just understanding it's probably been the best thing for me and seeking help and going to speak to someone about it. And did you go back being a chippy? Is that what you're doing now as a job? Yeah, I am. So I'm back working as a as builder with my, um, my own business. I'm about to go into – I've actually started doing stuff with um, the Master Builders Association here in South Australia. Um, so obviously I do keynote speaking as well. About, then I've recently started doing stuff with um, Master Builders Association and helping all their workers and apprentices – Stuff get back to work from injury or trauma or they might be going through a hard time. So, yeah, but I still love, like I'll always be on the tools to some degree. I find that it gives me purpose and I, I love getting out there. And, and I've, I've worked in jobs. I've went actually out and got a job as a building supervisor after my attack and thinking that that would be the best thing for me being completely off the tools and it turned out to be the worst thing I've ever done. Um, it was just a really stressful job. You know, I was quoting four jobs a day, managing 50, 60 jobs at once. And um, it turns out that that wasn't very good for my home mental health at all. So I, I canned that job and uh, ended up going back out and starting my own business. And, and yeah, I love it. So it keeps me, keeps me fit. 
Well, mate, yeah, it's good to see you're, uh, you've bounced back and, you, and you're back into a job that you actually love, so it's good. Also, there's a story about the uh, tooth that got stuck in your board. Tell us a bit about that. Oh, that was a that was a nightmare. As I said, yeah, my leg and board washed up on the beach. There was a the bottom tooth, uh, a tooth from the bottom jaw stuck in the bottom of my board. Obviously, the police collected my board. They took it for evidence, not knowing if I was going to survive or not. Pretty obvious, really. And they took this tooth out of the board and they gave it to the fisheries in Port Lincoln. And as soon as the fisheries had it, I wasn't allowed to have it because they're a protected species. So I tried, tried numerous times after my attack to, to get that tooth back, got rejected. And then it wasn't until uh, the local paper advertiser did a story on it over here and he contacted the one of the politicians, uh, ministers over here, and, and he actually ended up giving me a permit from the government to have it back. But that took six years. So... Yeah, just crazy to think that, you know, it was stuck in the bottom of my board, but I'm not allowed to have it. And it took my bloody leg, but I wasn't allowed to have it because they're a protected species. But, you know, it's I've got it back now, but it's just going to be a good thing to, you know, show my kids and stuff like that, I think, um, in the future. I'm not actually going to do so, anything. I'm not going to put it on a necklace or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> so you've just got it at home, mate? You haven't got it up on the wall somewhere? No, nah, no, nah, I just got it at home in a jar somewhere, so... Yeah. <laughs> All right. What uh, what's the future then hold for uh, for you? Is it uh, you know to do more surfing and a competition um, in, in, around the world in, in what you're doing? Yeah, I, I do and do enjoy doing that. It's a good way of meeting other people and stuff like that. But keen to do more more uh, keynote speaking. Oh, I love getting up in front of people and sharing my story, and I hope that it can help other people, um, especially around the whole trauma um, area and stuff like that. And the growth and stuff you can have from your trauma if you can come out on the other side. It's, um, yeah, I, you know, personally, if you'd asked me a few years ago, if anyone that knew me, there's no way that I would have got up in front of people and spoken or, you know, or ever got back in the water. But, by you know, just challenging myself and trying new things, I've had, I've had a lot of personal growth and um, that's what I love talking about now. So, yeah, that, getting um, speaking and then, um, yeah, probably a little bit, of, a little bit more surfing. I just want to... Yeah, hopefully surf for as long as I can. Well, mate, it's great you're telling your story and, and doing the keynote speaking because it will help a lot of people. I find even with this podcast, just people talking about it, telling their stories, it helps a lot of other people who potentially could be in a similar situation um, that you're dealing with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, like I, I go speak at schools and corporate events and everything and um, – the feedback that I get from all these things um, keeps, makes me want to keep doing it. So, And how do people get in contact if they want you to come and, and uh, you know, speak at the school or, or do a corporate uh, talk? Uh, so they can just go onto my website, um, chrisblows.com.au, and there's a link there that um, you can send an email to me and have any, if you have any inquiries and you've got that. Um, you can buy my book on the website as well. Yeah, so probably the, the easiest way to contact me through my website. And well, tell us a bit about the book then. It, it, it's basically all about the, your story? Not just about me. So um, the books, I didn't want the, like when the doctor comes, so the doctor that saved my life, she's the one that pretty much wrote the book. So she came to me and said, this story is great. Like, you know, there's no way you should have survived. We have to put this into a book. And I said, I don't want a book, I don't want the book to be just about me. Um, and that's what we've done with with, with the book is about my upbringing a little bit, but I've got everyone's story in there from the day and how it's affected them and where they are now. So it's a really interesting read. We've had a lot of good feedback from it, and um, yeah, it's uh, just 
I suppose a lot about um, both mine and hers, like post-traumatic growth and stuff like that. And have you con- been in contact with the other surfers on the day? You know, have they been struggling as, as some of them have, as, you, as you've been talking about before? They all have, like especially Joe, like one of the, so Nick and Brock, obviously that witnessed it up close range. They've struggled themselves, especially in the early stages. You know, as you can imagine, that would have been a very traumatic experience from being that up, up and close with it. But even, you know, even some of the paramedics and, and doctors that are seasoned to see this stuff all the time, they've, they've had trauma from it. Um, and I've, I've caught up with all of them. I, I touch base with these people regularly to see how they're going. And um, I think if I, did, if, it, if I didn't survive that day and I wasn't back into surfing like I am now and going really well, I don't think they would be... You know, I think that the whole situation would be a lot different for them, especially for my two good mates, Nick Brock. If I didn't survive, you know, I think they'd be in a, in a much different situation. So, Well, mate, uh, Chris, it's great hearing your story and, and how positive you are after an incident like that. It's, it's uh, great to see. And, and you're out there telling your story, helping so many other people as well. So well done, mate. No, cheers. Uh, mate, at the end of the interview, I do uh, a segment, Five Fun Facts. So I'm going to throw... Five questions that you can answer them however you want. Yep. Good. Uh, the first was, what are the best and worst purchases you have ever made? I thought about this. So the, the, the best purchase I've ever made is actually just one of those. It took me so long to get one, but now when I get changed with prosthetics and all that sort of stuff, it's, it's a bit of a process. So just one of those um, hooded towels has been literally the best thing ever because it makes it so much easier for me to when I'm changing you know, my wetsuit to getting my prosthetics on and off. That's been my 100% best purchase. And... Probably my worst purchase would be a bloody electric drum kit. That's not the same. Um, wasted a few <laughs> grand on that thing and, um, yeah, definitely not the same uh, as, a, as a real drum kit. But cats or dogs and why? Dogs, 100%. Cats, they bloody give me itchy eyes and make me sneeze. So. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, what are you most proud of? Uh, would be probably my two kids, uh, Winnie and Eddie, a three-and-a-half-year-old and a six-week-old, being able to have a family still after all of this, um, super proud of them. And probably just, you know, just getting back in the water and, and surfing back over on the Air Peninsula, that's a, been a big step for me, especially some areas around Elliston and stuff like that, just having that courage to get back in there and surf those spots, knowing what it's like. I'm super proud that I'd be able to – and then just stand up on a board, to tell you the truth, bloody hard with an above-knee prosthetic. You know, I don't have that – I don't have that – I don't have that knee and range of motion to be able to, you know – lower my center of gravity so being able to bloody stand up on a surfboard above knee um super proud of that mate it is a great effort it's hard enough to stand up with you know normally let alone uh, <laughs> with uh, what you're going through <laughs> but what's the most interesting thing you've read or seen this week uh reading the paper early this week it's probably that um there's a there's a few wave pool companies that are looking at putting a wave pool really close to my house here in adelaide so that's been a super interesting thing to read. I never thought that they would even consider one in LA, but they're definitely considering one um, next to the airport there. So that'd be good if they, they could because, as most as I said, most LA surfers have got to buddy drive 30 minutes, at least 30 minutes to get a surf. If I could go 10 minutes and get a, get a surf in every day, that'd be bloody good. I mean, it's not the same. I went to that urban surf in, in Melbourne. It's still not the same as a real, but it is still fun, you know, so... Yeah, that'd be bloody good. 
Yeah, I've been to uh, Urban Surf Melbourne. It is fun. It's just a little bit different paddling onto the wave, isn't it? It's sort of got a bit of a different it, feel. It is. It's often, you know, it's really really hard to get into, isn't it? Like, it, I, I missed the first four or five waves. But, yeah, you realise you really got to paddle hard to get into them. Yeah. But it was fun. Yeah, it is fun. Mate, what song do you have to sing along with when you hear it? Uh, I don't have any in particular, but at the moment, yeah. my, my three-and-a-half-year-old, <laughs> he's obsessed with Elvis Presley at the moment and it's a hound dog um, by Elvis Presley. So every, every time we get in the car, he's at that age where I can't put any bloody song on but hound dog <laughs> by Elvis Presley. So that would probably be the one, one song at the moment. <laughs> Very good, mate. Very good. Well, Chris, thanks for coming in, mate, the Beach Shack, having a chat and telling your story. And uh, I'm pretty sure... Um, People will be fascinated with it. It's uh, an amazing story. Some of the things you said, it, it gave me chills because, I mean, I'm out in the water pretty much every day and there's, yeah, nothing worse. I mean, we're lucky over at Bondi. We don't get as uh, as many big sharks. We get, a, yeah. you know, probably the bull sharks are worse for us than uh, the big great whites. But, yeah, yeah. Mate, uh, well done in, in what you've achieved. Not too easy. Thanks, Hoppo. Now let's go to Beach Banner. This week in the Beach Shack, we've got uh, Eddie. He's in for a bit of beach banner. He's uh, going to tell a story about uh, lifeguards and, and being in the jobs. How are you, Eddie? Yeah, good, thanks. Up. How are you, mate? Good, mate. Now, we do a lot of rescues, and um, is there one that stands out for you uh, since you've been working now as a lifeguard? Uh, yeah, definitely. There's one one special rescue I remember doing uh, on this day where we've I've gone down to the beach during the middle of the week, uh, we set the beach up. The surf's really big, like uh, just a, uh, as big as it would get on, on one of those, you know, good three or four meter southerly swells. Uh, it's, yeah, easily six to eight foot, very dangerous. No one's swimming, no one's surfing. And um, about two hours into the day, we've just got a, a call from uh, the, the police, the, the emergency phone in the tower's ringing and... Uh, my, one, of my, one of the boys has answered and then radioed down to me. I, I was on the beach and he just said, oh, there's a body around the corner, around the corner from the golf course. And they didn't know any details other than that there's just someone in the water. Uh, don't know if they're alive or they're dead, but we need to launch the jet ski immediately and go around the corner and look for them. So uh, I was already on the beach, so I've just come up to the tower and I've got changed into my uh, and just into my wetsuit top and put the, the jacket on radio and then the boys have just launched me on the ski and I've just gone straight out punching these big waves uh, around the corner around Ben Buckler and still at this point um, there wasn't much information on exactly where I was going or what or who I was picking up uh, and I remember just being on the jet ski on this huge day just going around as soon as I went around the corner it was just like the swell you could feel how powerful the swell is because these massive swells are hitting the cliff and then bouncing back and I just felt so small and so insignificant on the jet ski and just thinking wow like I can't even it's so hard to see just a few meters in front of you like let alone trying to pick someone up in this massive area and so I've got around the corner and I've taken a very like wide line staying well away from the rocks and I can just see up on the cliff, there's maybe like, yeah, 20 or 30 people, all emergency service workers. And they're all, all these policemen, they're all just pointing like down, down. And I was like, okay, I'll keep going further south. And then 
they, they eventually just stopped pointing. And then I was just thinking, wow, okay, well, I guess whoever I'm looking for has got to be somewhere in this area. Sure enough, just I see this hand just go up right in front of me, about 30 meters in front of the jet ski. And I thought, wow, this is crazy. That, that's, the, that's the guy I'm looking for. And then I've got to him and it was this um, fisherman wearing all of his clothes. He had, his, he had tracksuit pants, shoes, long sleeve top. And he was barely, barely swimming, just kept his head up above the water. And he, yeah, he was of Middle Eastern background, didn't speak any English. And I just grabbed him and pulled him onto the back of the sled and just took a moment. And he was just there, just so exhausted. Uh, apparently, he just, yeah, obviously been swim, fishing off the rocks in that area and a big wave had hit him and he just got washed off the rocks and then started swimming just out. So incredibly lucky to be in this situation because it was super dangerous, like given the swell and the conditions where he was fishing. I wasn't expecting uh, anyone to be alive, really. So that was a massive win uh, when I picked him up. Yeah, driven him all the way back around to Bondi and then got this really great run on the way in and then beached the ski with him still on the back even I felt was was a bit dangerous because if I beached it uh, too hard on the sand, I've he could have just gone flying off the ski, so I was a bit worried how that was going to work out. But we got a, a great run up this up, up the beach, and then sure enough, the the ambulance was there. The paramedics were wet, wet ready for him, and uh, apparently they said that a golfer had heard someone screaming from down below. So well, this guy had just gone for a game of golf, and then he's heard someone scream, and then that the golfer then called the police, who had called us. So. Yeah. Well, it was lucky he didn't get washed back up the rocks because of the swirl and he didn't have a life jacket on at all? They had no life jacket. They had nothing on, no gear at all. Yeah, it was incredibly lucky. I, I can't believe that he wasn't more injured or, yeah, or even just the fact that he's alive. Like, given the swell, how big it was on that day, it's absolute suicide to be fishing at the back there of those cliffs. Like, even on a small day, it's dangerous there. Those big waves can – those little waves, I mean, can come up and can wash fishermen off the rock, so – yeah, it was incredible. It was, a, it was a lucky guy, lucky that it was someone heard him scream and then we were able to get there as quick as we did. Well, mate, good job, Eddie. Uh, saved another life, mate, so well done. <laughs> thanks, mate. Yeah, it's another uh, day at Bondi. Another day at Bondi. Mate, uh, thanks for stopping into the beach shack and I'll uh, catch you down the beach soon. No worries. Cheers, Hop. Now it's time to have a listen to the fans in the mailbag. This week's letter in the mailbag is from Bianca and she says there's a lot of hot weather uh, that we have had over the last few weeks and looks like it's going to be a another hot summer coming. Uh, has there been many rescues at Bondi? Well, Bianca, there's we had a stretch of five days of, you know, around that 30-degree mark. Uh, we had a, a fair few rescues there, but probably not as many as expected the swell was uh, quite small so wasn't too bad not a lot of rips were pulling that hard so it did help us in that side we probably did anything from 10 to 15 rescues over that period so hopefully this summer we don't uh, have too many rescues but uh, obviously that's uh, inevitable it will happen so we're prepared we've done a lot of uh, training and preparation ready for this upcoming summer Thanks, Bianca, for your letter, and I'll catch everybody again next week. 
Thanks everyone for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.